I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Wallentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we are sitting down with Muftia McCartan to talk about the Office of the House Parliamentarian. So grab your Roberts rules. And let's get civical. Hello. Welcome, welcome to Let's Get Civical. I'm Lizzie Stewart. And I'm Arden Wallentowski. We are with Muftia McCartan, and she was in the office of the House Parliamentarian for nearly 30 years. And we are so excited to talk to her about the office does, what she did, her time there. We're really excited. Now she is the co-chair of Covington's Global Public Policy Practice Group, and we are very excited to have her on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So... Yeah, let's start at the very beginning, how you ended up in the office of the House <laughs> Parliamentary, because it's not like one of those, it's not like one of those uh, places that you think, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to go work in the office of the Parliamentarian. So I would love to know your journey there. Yeah. So a couple years out of high school, no college, but I was 
a really good secretary. Yeah. I had really fantastic secretarial skills, not going <laughs> to lie. And so when I decided I wanted to work on the Hill, I interviewed with a whole number of offices. And I was thinking, well, at the end of all the interviews, I'll just line all of the offers up and then pick the best one and, and off I go. So in that process, I interviewed at what was then the Government Operations Committee, which is now the Oversight and Government something. That, that, that committee's always, the name is always changing, <laughs> but that's Cummings Committee. Mm-hmm. But back then, and this was in 76, it was Jack Brooks Committee. Jack Brooks later, he was a congressman from Texas. He later became the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed there, and I kind of was going up the chain in my interviews. And finally, I was interviewing with the staff director of the committee, Bill Jones, who's sadly no longer with us. And he said, are you interested in the position? Yes, I'm interested in the position. Well, let's go meet the chairman. So we go and sit down, and I'm across from his desk, and Jack Brooks had keychains that he used to give out. So he threw me a keychain. He says, so you want to work with us here? You know, have have a good time, honey. (laughs) And nobody offered me the job. No one offered me the job. Everyone just assumed I wanted to work at the right. Government Operations Committee. Wow. So I went home in tears, and I said, well, I guess I'm working at the Government Operations Committee, and so much for all these other great offers, other great offices that I you know, would have probably chosen. Mm. So I started on a Monday, and I was in a secretarial pool, and it was just not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I went home again in tears (laughs) and I called the parliamentarian's office because that was one of the offices that I was interviewing with. And Mm -hmm. I said, is that position still open? Mm. And they said, no, I'm sorry. We offered it to someone else. If they turn it down, I'll call you. So they called me on Friday after I'd only been at the government operations committee for five days. Wow. Offered me the position and I left. <laughs> You're like, bye. <laughs> and and Bill Jones became a very good friend of mine over the years. Oh, I wow. absolutely loved him. So he forgave me for doing that to him. But that's how I started. And then I went to school at night. So I started in August of 76. And I started back in school January of 77. And then I, I quit for a year. Then I went back to school. Then I had a child on my own. And so I had to quit again. And and then, uh, and this is all my BA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a career counselor and I said, I, I can't get back to school. I'm trying, I'm trying, I can't, you know, I mean, I, I like, this is not a part-time job. This is very much a full-time yeah, job. Right, and I had yeah. a child. So she said, this was the day before, the days before, you know, Vice President Gore had invented the internet. And so he... <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God he did. Where's the thing for you? Honestly. So there's no online classes, you know. Oh, yeah. So the career counselor said, well, have, have you ever heard of the University Without Walls? So, no. So it was out of northeastern Illinois, and I had mentors in D.C., and I had professors at, at, at the university, and I, they were able to... I, I took a couple classes, but they were able to cobble together everything that I had done beforehand and with a program, which was basically writing, you know, mm. I do an undergraduate thesis and so on. So I finished my BA in 86 and then I went straight to law school wow. from there. And then as soon as I graduated from law school, passed the bar, then I became a parliamentarian. Hey. Wow. So, so I started in what 76 and I didn't become a parliamentarian until January of 91. So. Wow. 
A lesson in persistence. Yeah, that's so impressive. (laughs) But that's, you know, I mean, honestly, when I took the job in the parliamentarian's office, I was thinking, yeah, you know, I'm a kid, right? I'm saying, oh, you know, maybe two years, this will be fun, you know, it's right off the floor, you're, you know, you're located in the speaker's office itself. Oh, wow. It didn't take me long. It took me really a nanosecond to realize I was someplace very, very special. Mm. What was it that felt great? So there's so many things that are special about the parliamentarian's office, but I would say it is, the parliamentarian's office is a group of people who are so committed to the institution. Yeah. And you have to have somebody that committed to the institution to be in that role. Yeah. And you have all the politics swirling around you, but you have to stay, not just the politics, you have the policies too. Yeah. You know, I mean... Procedure is high stakes. Yeah. And sometimes you're advising and you know that a policy that in your heart you may feel is the right policy is is going to be lost. You know, it, it's, it's going to lose with this procedural advice. And so it's sort of that fidelity to getting it right. Yeah. And that fidelity to, to the institution. Yeah. It's it's a pretty remarkable place, and it's a group of very remarkable people. I don't know all of them anymore because <laughs> there's there's been some turnover in the office. But I do know that the parliamentarian Thomas Wickham, we all call him Wick. He started in the office in '95, mm. and so we had a number of years together. And, and he's just a, just a stellar stellar person, and a, just a his analysis of uh, his analyses of the procedures is just tireless. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to hear like high praise of a office and government right now. It's so it's warming. <laughs> I would love to dive into why, like, what exactly the office of the parliamentarian is. Sure, like the basic. What does it do? Why is it? Why is, is it, it there? there? Sure, relax. <laughs> why <laughs> is it there? And and what its role serves that perhaps people who aren't in aren't tuned in all the time of what's going on here in D.C. Yeah. wouldn't know about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Sometimes I like to look at it as the referee. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the impartial referee. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson used to say, it is much more material that there should be a rule to go by than what the rule is. That there may be a uniformity of proceeding in business not subject to the caprice of the speaker or, or capriciousness of the members. It is very material that order, decency, and regularity be preserved in a dignified public body. So in some ways, it's not as important what the rule is, is that there's a rule. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you don't have rules, then leadership becomes capricious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the House of Representatives, where you have 435 members, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a lot in, a, in a house, in an institution that is inherently extremely political, that's a problem. So the first, you know, when I said the fidelity to the institution, it really goes to the, the rules and the precedents. So in the House, there are standing rules that are adopted at the beginning of each Congress because the House is not a continuing body. So every time there's a new Congress, there's a, a new set of rules, which are basically last Congress's rules with certain changes. Mm. But those rules are subject to interpretation by the chair, and the chair will look to the parliamentarian for advice on those rules. And over the years, in my experience, in my, I don't even want to count how many number of years now, the chair has always followed 
the advice of the parliamentarian. And I think that you saw recently when the speaker's words were taken down a couple of months ago, where the ruling of the chair was, the advice of the parliamentarian was so difficult for the person who was in the chair at the time that he just left the chair. It was easier for him to just leave the chair than it was to say, I'm going to ignore the advice of the parliamentarian and I'm going to rule the other way and rule that the words are in order. He just, he left the chair instead of doing that. And I, you know, we can have a a long debate about whether that was the right thing to do or not. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I think it, it, in some ways it, it shows the respect that the members have for, for the parliamentarians that he would do that as opposed to just ignoring, ignoring the advice. So the parliamentarian advises the chair. The chairs of the committees. No, no, the chair, the, the the speaker in her in her nonpartisan role is basically chairing the house. She is the speaker right. of the house. She has nonpartisan functions, yes. and it's those nonpartisan functions that this that the parliamentarian advises her on. They also advise the committee chairs because they have their own parliamentary processes in their committees. They have committee rules. They have committee precedents. They have committee practices. And they often have a committee parliamentarian or a general counsel who advises the chair, and that person will often seek advice from the House parliamentarian. So they're available to the committees. They're available to the rank-and-file members. They're available to members on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that that can be a little tricky. It can be very tricky because... When you come to the parliamentarian's office, you're, you, there, there's, there's just confidentiality. Mm-hmm. That is an assumption that what you say to the parliamentarian's office is not going to be leaked in a way that the other side could, could use it for their own gain. Yeah. But sometimes the other side might kind of figure out what's mm-hmm. going on, and they'll come in and they'll start asking questions mm-hmm. of the parliamentarian. Well, what about this? What about this? What about oh, this? Wow. So those are the situations where it can, get, it can get a little tricky, and that's where you have to trust that the parliamentarian is someone who, can, who, who will never compromise the office, who will right. never compromise their, their advice. And I, I have worked for Bill Brown, I worked for Charlie Johnson. I worked for John Sullivan. Mm. I never got to work with Wick uh, for work, but I worked with Wick, and I can tell you, in every single case, yeah. they they would never compromise their principles or, or or try to put themselves in a position of even being manipulated by by the other side. But it it, it can be difficult. Yeah, you know, it can be difficult. What happens in those moments when somebody comes to the office of the House Parliamentarian and says, like, do you? You know, how do you weigh, if you can tell that somebody's looking to get information and you you can assess that they're trying to play a political game, how do you, is the response just to not play into that and to give an answer, an honest and truthful answer to whatever their question yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, you you know, if somebody comes in and says, well, what's the precedence on XYZ? They may know why they're asking. Right. And we may know why they're asking. And I say we, meaning the parliamentarians, may know why they're asking, but they're going to have to answer the question. And then are they under some sort of, you know, duty to turn around and tell the other side, oh, by the way, they're asking questions on that? Well, no. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so you have to just be that, you know, that information. You have to be sort of the, uh, what's the right word for it? The The bearer of the advice. You know, you have to be able to give the advice 
and be able to point to relevant precedents for any questions that is asked yeah. in just a really clean way. If that makes sense. That yeah. makes, total makes total sense. sense. Another responsibility of the parliamentarian is to refer all the bills that are introduced. So every bill that is introduced is referred to committee on the same day um, that it is introduced. And under the House rules, every committee um, that has basically a major jurisdiction over over the, the bill gets to review the bill. So it gets referred to them. So the parliamentarians not only have to figure out all the committees that are, would want to look at this bill or would need to under the rules look at this bill then they have to pick a committee that's primary who has primary jurisdiction over it because that committee is the one who's going to basically drive the process how do you become the house parliamentarian well you have to be a lawyer you have to be a lawyer okay great out. Yeah, okay lawyer. well darn yeah. it <laughs> yeah i've lost the position before it began that's why great. that's why that's why i had to persevere for all those years right yeah. right okay, um, so you have to be a lawyer you have to be a lawyer and you can't have anything political in your background great wow mm -hmm. yeah so it was actually when i left the parliamentarian's office in 2005 i didn't want to take a political job because mm. I thought that that would be bad for my office. Mm. So I went to the Appropriations Committee as a nonpartisan professional staff, and I went with the Republicans. And it wasn't until the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, became Speaker in 2007 mm. and where I said, okay. And I, I went first. I went to the parliamentarians, and I said, you know, I'd really like to take a partisan job. And, you know, it was like... The advice that was given to me was like, Muff, there's partisan jobs and there's partisan jobs. You know, just mm -hmm. make sure, you know, basically make sure you do it right. Yeah. And I think that there was probably enough space at that point between the parliamentarian's office and partisan job that I took that I think it was probably okay. Back in the 80s, we did have Pete Robinson was an assistant parliamentarian and he left actually to go work for Jim Wright. And, and that was really, that, that was it was problematic for, for the office. I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't because that's the kind of stellar person that Peter Peter is. And, and actually, ultimately, he ended up becoming a Senate parliamentarian. So. Oh, wow. And, fa and, the, and the fact that he actually worked for the speaker at, at, one, po at one point, like that's how much they, they, they trusted his, his judgment and his ability, ability to be nonpartisan. Even though he had had this political... Even though he had the political... That was on the Senate side, yeah. What do they... What would you consider, or the Office of the House Parliamentarian, consider something to be political? Like, what are the... Like, are you talking about job? I mean, no, you're talking... Well, just about every job on the Hill is political. It's political. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, there's How very few that are political job. You know, know. So, it's for like, example, you know, Ledge Council's office, they're nonpolitical. Mm. CBO, right? Like those kinds of CBO, offices. CBO, yeah. CBO is non-political. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I ultimately I was staff director of the rules committee. That's about as political as it gets. Yeah. So, and and I, you know there was a time, for example, John Sullivan. He came from the Armed Services Committee, but back when he was on the Armed Services Committee in the eighties, it was a it was it was basically nonpartisan professional staff. Mm -hmm. And it, it just became more, you know, so we felt comfortable or I should, you know, I say we, it wasn't me, you know, it was Bill Brown and Charlie Johnson felt comfortable recruiting from that, from that committee. Because even though on paper it's a partisan committee, the people, the staff. Well, I mean, there's, there's Democratic members and Republican members, but the staff at that time is not, it's not so much anymore. But at that time it was, it was, I don't want to say, I don't want to say they were completely nonpartisan, yeah. but, but they were kind of apolitical. That's amazing. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So you have to be a lawyer 
and never have held a partisan or political job. Are there any other like on paper requirements or just general? No, I mean, you know, often they would recruit from law schools. Sure. And then to become like the, the number one guy who now is, I can't remember his full name because you've only referred to him as Wick. <laughs> Who's Tom now Wickham. Wick? We all know. We all know who Wick is. Tom Wickham. Tom Wickham. How did he get to be where he is now? Yeah. So there's a deputy parliamentarian and then mm-hmm. the rest of them are assistants. Great. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty much, it's pretty much attrition, but you know, not necessarily. You've talked a little bit about this, but if you could name the offices, maybe not the people who hires these people. Like, is it the office, like the parliamentarian themselves? No, so the, so the parliamentarian is appointed by the speaker. Got it. That's so interesting. Yeah. Let me put it this way. Contrast it to the Senate parliamentarian. So the Senate parliamentarian went through a period of time. That office went through a period of time where it was political, Mm. where when the parties switched, the parliamentarian switched. Mm. That has never happened in the house. When the parties switch, the parliamentarian stays. They go with the furniture. That's so. Is there a term for no? no? It's just mm-hmm. whenever because you're like civic, yeah yeah and you know I think Charlie Johnson served the house for fifty years. Oh, I think he's still sort of an informal advisor in many ways. How can you not be out? Yeah, fifty years. Bill we would Brown, all go to Charlie. I, I think, <laughs> let's see. Bill Brown was maybe forty years. I think that's so impressive. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that the ter- that the. Senate parliamentarian's office was more political because it's, we tend to think of the Senate as being like, it's the upper chamber. It's, you know, they're there for a longer period of time. And so there's, it's more of like the big boys club. And so to find out that the the house parliamentarian's office is actually the, the less partisan one, as opposed to the Senate. Well, it's like the, so a I, contradiction. Yeah. But, but, you know, to the Senate parliamentarian's, great credit and, and Peter as well I and mean, Alan Fruman b- before Elizabeth they they have worked really really hard mm. to ensure that the rulings out of that office and the advice out of that office I shouldn't say rulings the advice out of that office are consistent mm-hmm. and based on precedent and they've just they've really turned that around in the last, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so. Yeah. Oh, so cool. I don't think people really view the Senate Parliamentarian's office anymore as partisan. Okay. I was just using that as an example because they went through a period right. where it, it was. There was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do the do the different chamber parliamentarians offices ever have to meet or talk yeah, to each other for Because <laughs> sometimes there's joint rules. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when there's joint rules, yes. But otherwise the rules are the rules of the House and Senate are very, very different. Right. Mm-hmm. Very different. And you say that they establish new rules at the beginning of every new house. The House does, but the, house not does, the yes. Senate, because um, the Senate is a continuing body, right. so they don't have to. Is the parliamentarian a part of establishing those new rules, like the rules that they're editing from last sessions, or they're just here so, to be new? Yeah. Yes and no. Okay, great. The decisions on the standing rules of the House are voted on by the House. Mm-hmm. And so it's... You know, basically, like anything else that's voted on in the House, it's, you know, it's a partisan political exercise where the majority, when they gain control of the House, they will review the rules from the last Congress. They they will get recommendations. Like, for example, Kilmer has his select committee right now where he's looking at the processes of the House. And they will come up with a slate of rules changes. 
And they will take those to the parliamentarian to vet mm. because which ones are workable, which ones aren't workable. What are, you know, like if we, if we would, is this, if we pass this rule, is there going to be a domino effect here? What are the consequences? Mm. And those are the kinds of issues that the parliamentarian can identify. Moreover, the parliamentarian sometimes can recognize some real technical issues that need to be fixed in the rules. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every, every Congress, at the beginning of every con Congress, they will come to the parliamentarian's office and say, you know, are there any technical changes that, that need to be made? Who normally handles this process, at least in the recent history of the House, is the Rules Committee. They're the ones that manage that process for, for the majority. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Climate 2020 is a new podcast that makes climate change the top issue of the 2020 presidential election. Listen as researchers, activists, and journalists like MSNBC's Chris Hayes explain where your favorite candidate stands on climate and which proposals make the most sense. Hear thought-provoking conversations about how we can solve our world's greatest crisis. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and learn more at climate2020podcast.com. Hey, Lizzie. Hey, Arden. Do you know what brand I absolutely love? Absolutely, I don't. Tell me. Oh, my God. I love Lola. Lola? What's Lola? Lola is a female-founded company that offers a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. The female founders of Lola looked around, and they were like, we use this stuff. We put it in and on our bodies. Truly, the, once a month, every month. Once a month, every month, near the most sensitive parts of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And none of this stuff is organic. Can you believe that? Other producers of feminine care products may also be treated with harsh chemical cleaning agents, fragrance, and dyes. Lola products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. J'adore! Lola makes your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable. You can choose your mix of products, mix of absorbency, number of boxes, and frequency of delivery. I can't tell you how important this is to be able to customize your subscription. Because it's if so you great. if you go to like a general store and you're looking for tampons, you have to buy tampons separately, you have to buy pads separately, you have to buy wipes separately. And it's all extremely difficult and expensive. However, with Lola, because you know your own body, you can pick out, hey, I know I'm going to use these tampons, these pads, and these wipes, and it all comes in one package to your knock-knock-ding-dong door. And we want you guys to experience the joy that is Lola. So if you go to mylola.com and enter civical30, that's C-I-V-I-C-A-L, Three zero, you will get thirty percent off your first month subscription. Thirty percent! Can crazy. you believe it? It's insane. And you can do good with your purchase. For every purchase, Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the United States. So once again, visit mylola.com and enter civical thirty, and be happy you did. Welcome back, guys. We're jumping right back in and talking about the office of the House Parliamentarian. Can you think of, and like literally any example is fine, a, like <laughs> an example of a, of a rule that like was, you know, was one thing and then it got changed to something else. 
Like, I, oh, I can come up with a lot, but I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, th- I think the one, I think the one, you know, when you talk about how important the precedents are, you know, you look at the Germanus rule of the house, it's, it's one line, no motion or proposition on a subject different from that under consideration shall be admitted under color of amendment. One sentence. If you look at the pre- volumes of precedents, volumes, yeah, chapters, I should say, yeah. chapters and chapters and chapters of precedents on interpreting one, one, one sentence. Line. Wow. You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole number of tests of germaneness, you know, whether it's the is a committee jurisdiction test, whether it's a subject matter test, you know, a, a methods test, a purpose, you know, right. purpose versus methods test. You know, there's just a number of them. Because you're, you're talking about like a, if you're going to make an amendment to a bill, it has to be germane to the content of the bill. Is that what you're talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in theory, you know, maybe you can, if it's an education bill, you couldn't put like a veterans affairs, something that was, a, you know, a, a, in theory, a, in theory, right? Like mm-hmm. those wouldn't overlap except that, Maybe it's about vets going to college, in which case that would be an amendment that would be germane. Well, the tests for germaneness are precise, and so <laughs> you know you have to look at the text. Right. But in theory, you could, in many cases, find a way to make something that might not seem germane if you're just looking at it in isolation. Yeah. But if you're looking at it in the context of the bill, then you you might be able to find a way to, to make it germane. Oh, that's interesting. But the Senate doesn't have a germaneness rule. I mean, it's really one of the it's a it's a key, it's a it's a it's a it's a key to the character of the procedures of the House. Mm. You know, if you say that the procedures of the House are really designed for legislative economy and efficiency, which is what they are, yeah. then making sure that members can't lob unrelated amendments on a bill is key to that. Right. The Senate, on the other hand, is more, their procedures are more geared towards the, you know, the the primacy of the defense, you know, so there are much greater protections to the minority. And one of the primary, uh, you know, the primacy of the defense is being able to allow somebody to just, you know, lob an amendment that's not germane onto the bill. Obviously, there's closure and all sorts of other things you have to think about to get those things done. But, and there are some instances where there's... There's uh, the Germanus rule would apply in the Senate, but we love terms. That's yeah. <laughs> I would love to sort of talk a little bit more about your experience in this office because I believe if I did my research right, you were the first woman to be in this office. The first woman parliamentarian. Parliamentarian, yeah. yeah. And that sounds super incredible. And I just kind of want to ask what that was like. If that felt like as big as as it sounds to me, or if it was just like you felt totally at ease. Yeah. So, you know, I've told this story before, you know, I I think that first of all, I was at a very supportive office. Great. That's wonderful um, to hear. (laughs) But, you know, you have to remember, I wasn't a woman who came into the office with a professional background. Mm. I started in the office as a secretary and I stay in the office and then I I had to make that jump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had to make that jump from basically a staff assistant to, to an attorney. And my boss at the time was very concerned about my practicing law without having passed a bar. Mm. And so I wasn't really given opportunities to give advice. I was given opportunities to do research and memos and that sort of thing. But I wasn't I wasn't going to be on the phone giving advice until I actually became a parliamentarian. And so it was kind of like um kind of, it was sort of a sudden change. Mm. 
And so that was what was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I was a woman. It was right. that I was a secretary. Yeah. All of a yeah. sudden becoming an attorney that people had to listen to, whereas before I just, you know, I answered the phone. Right. And Was it hard for people to make that jump with you? You know, interestingly, it was easier for other people than it was for myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I really think it was. Huh. Why do you think that is? I, mean, I think I just brought so many insecurities to it, you know, and, and that was also the kind of the wonderful thing about my office, you know, like when, you know, when John Sullivan was my boss, he kind of, I, I think I was sort of reticent to do certain things just because I sort of had those insecurities mm. and he, he would just, he'd nudge, 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 nudge. And, and then I was able to kind of build that confidence. And mm-hmm. then, and then once I was able to build the confidence, I was able to do a lot. I felt like I was able to do a lot more. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, what do you think is the hardest part about being a parliamentarian? What's um, the most difficult part of that job? You always have to be analytical. Mm. Always, mm-hmm. you know, you you can't take a break from being analytical. So, whatever question is coming at you, even if you feel like, oh, that's an easy question, no, stop, think, mm. consequences precedents, practices. And, you know, I mean, we've really only kind of touched on half of what the parliamentarians do. And, but the other part of what they do is that in order to have these precedents to rely on, somebody's got to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like for this It's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so the parliamentarian goes through the record every day, the congressional record every day and marks things that should be put in the scrapbooks I literally just have this image of like, (laughs) there's just some, Wick has some scissors and it's just like cutting it out. There's like an (laughs) Well, actually there was a time and it was rubber cement and I used to be in charge of the rubber cement and I can tell you, and then the rubber cement would come off and then we'd try to do other things and then we'd give it to GPO and try to, you know, paste it in better. Of course now it's all done electronically. I was going to say, I hope we've put that on a computer somewhere. (laughs) The scissors. Oh, yeah, I used to do that. Yeah, and the rubber cement. That is crazy. A scrapbook. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not a scrapbook, but it's, I think it's. No, actually, it was a scrapbook. (laughs) Actually, it was. I just can't get over it. Where do the scrapbooks go? Well, I don't know where they are now, but they... And then there's a a book for the layman Mm. called The House Practice. And the House Practice book, I would really recommend anyone who is at all involved in the house, whether you're lobbying or whatever, because it's organized alphabetically. So... You know, somebody can say, oh, man, you know, I've got this appropriations problem. Oh, okay, let me look it up. A, appropriations, and there's a whole appropriations chapter, and then you go into the appropriations chapter, and it's all broken out, so you can look at whatever your issue is. And then it, it, it kind of gives you sort of, um, you know, just a, a very, I don't want to say simple, right. but but they give you a very useful explanation with citations where you can do a deeper dive if you need to do a deeper dive. That is so helpful. Yeah, because the the House Rules Manual, which the parliamentarians are also responsible for doing. So after the rules are changed at the beginning of a Congress and and the scrapbooks are, you know, you (laughs) kind of figure out what what of those decisions of the chair should go into the manual Mm. because all the rules in the manual, all the rules are annotated with the chair's decisions and very, very brief with a, with a date where you can go to the record and look them up. Mm-hmm. And so the parliamentarian is 
is responsible for putting that manual together. But that's not the kind of book where the layman would be like, oh, yeah, I think I'll just sit down and read the manual. <laughs> but a layman could sit down and read the, the practice book. Yeah. They could. Yeah. They could. I assume everybody in the office of the parliamentarian has access to the scrapbooks. Do other people have access to the scrapbooks? No, that, but they're published. That's the other thing that the parliamentarian does is devotes a tremendous amount of resources to make sure that those precedents are up to date, that the practice book is up to date, that the manual is up to date, that everything is up to date because, to your point, people need to know what the precedents are because yeah. predictability is so important and you need to be able to do your you know, your due diligence and, and be able to anticipate you know, what, what a chair's ruling might look like. In regards to people coming to or members of the House coming to the parliamentarian's office for, you know, advice about certain bills or whatever it's that like they're working we're on. Mind. Is that what you were going to ask? I was literally, I took an inhale I was, breath. <laughs> like, what was it? We're in sync. My, well, my question was, maybe this is your question, is just how, what does that conversation look like if I come to you and I'm like, this is my question. Is it usually you'll give it to me right away? Will you go and take time to look up well, stuff? Well, you know how I said, you know how I said, like, that's the hardest part about being a parliamentarian is yeah. to, being, to be, analytical. like, constantly analytical. Yeah. And I would answer your question by saying, yeah, you know, sometimes people call and say, you know, how many votes does it take to adjourn the House or whatever, you know? <laughs> but you have to be, in my experience, you have to be careful mm. with any question because... Sometimes a simple response, sometimes the questions aren't really asked right. Sometimes they don't really know what they're asking. And so you're giving what you think is a simple answer. It turns out not to be a simple answer because the question wasn't really asked right. So you just kind of, you know, it's a very collaborative office. Mm -hmm. And so there's never this sense that, you know, why are we having a discussion on something so simple? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, oh, okay, you, you thought this was important enough to bring to the group to discuss. Mm -hmm. So it does become a group thing. It's, it's Not everything becomes a good group thing, but I think more things become a group thing than not. Right. Because that's the beauty of the office, Right. is that they have to be able, people have to be able to count on the advice that they're given. Mm -hmm. right. And they have to thoroughly vet their advice with each other. Mm-hmm. And they play devil's advocate with each other to make sure that the advice that they're giving is well vetted, mm. well thought out, well analyzed. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> is it just a blast? <laughs> no, it'd it be, does. I mean, it's. I mean, it would be exhausting for having to do it for thirty years. I mean, you know, or working in the office, you know, as the House parliamentarian for that long. Well, let's just like think about this for a sec, right? Like, look at look at Bill Brown and Charlie Johnson, and you know. When they were sort of growing up through the office, mm. bills came to the floor under open rules. Mm. Members could write, they could, they could write an amendment on the back of a napkin and then submit it. So they were constantly thinking right. on their feet, constantly. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there was a lot less restrictions on debate. Mm. There weren't cameras. Right. And so the debate was sometimes very very heated now people kind of come with their scripts mm. yeah sometimes their scripts are vetted not just with their communication shops sometimes even with the parliamentarians certainly oh, really? maybe with the committee chairman with their committee staff well back then you know people just came and talked right <laughs> talked and, it out yeah and so you know you had you had complex procedures that would come into play under open rules where under structured rules they don't those kind of complex procedures don't come into play anymore. Mm. There were times when, under the appropriations process, where 
the Senate would amend House appropriations bills with individual amendments, not just an amendment in the nature of a substitute. And there were very complex procedures around, you know, finalizing appropriations bills with those individual amendments. You know, again, just on amendments on amendment trees, you know, you can't really have an amendment tree under under a, a structured rule unless the rule provides for for the amendment tree. What's Amendment. So, so for example, <laughs> I like how you looked at me, and we were both like, "We're going to ask her what an amendment tree is." Yeah, so, so you know, member A gets up and you know and has an amendment, yeah. and somebody wants to perfect that amendment. Somebody oh, so like get an amendment to it. the amendment. Mm-hmm. Oh, got yeah. it. An amendment tree. Yeah, amendment tree. and and there's you know it can, it can get more complicated. So you can't do those unless it's oh, a certain... unless the rule because right. everything comes up under under a structured rule now. Yeah. So all the amendments are made in order, and they're not allowed to be amended <laughs> unless the rule. Provides for it, and right. when it does provide for it, it'll usually provide for what the amendment to the amendment will be. And so, so, so now, all that to say, the parliamentarians do a lot of behind the scenes as opposed yeah. to on the floor, quick. Mm-hmm. You know, they still do some of that, of course, but it's right. not the same as before, where everything was kind of thrown at them in real time, mm-hmm. and they had to answer in real time, I should say. And now it's, uh, you know, the rules committee. These are the amendments we're going to be are going to be made in order. Are these are these amendments germane? Do they have budget act points of order? You know, is there any other points of order that would lie against these amendments? Mm. And so it's it's not done on the floor in real time during like a, a session when people are on the floor, whether it's debate debating things or whatnot. If some sort of rule or precedent is broken in that process, is it the House parliamentarian who steps in and? rectifies that so there are very few rules that are self-enforcing great okay. there are there are, <laughs> there are there are a couple there are uh-huh. very few yeah most of them require a point of order to be made somebody has to raise a point of order and say you know congressman you know so and so his amendment is not germane great mm, okay okay if nobody raises a point of order then nobody's going to say anything what happens if somebody does raise the point of order then the chair has to rule and the chair that's where the chair would look to the parliamentarian Mm. Is this amendment germane or not? So mm. if it goes to the parliamentarian, is it something that happens in the moment or do they adjourn it, and then take it away? No, it happens in the moment. In the moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. very every session of something in the House, there's so a parliamentarian that's what I was on. saying, though, that the House is so much more scripted than it used to be. Yeah. So it used to be every single day was points of order that had to be researched, analyzed, and ruled on in real time. You know, now everything is so scripted, the parliamentarians are normally anticipating Got it. what might be a problem, mm. and then they're better prepared for it. And it That's not like, always the case. But right. It, it sounds to some of the things you've said that they get more information in advance from the members of Congress than they would have in previous sessions. You know, if they're getting speeches, if they're getting stuff in it, you know, Things that are going to be read or said aloud on the House floor as opposed to... Yeah, because, you know, because things are so much more scripted now. Yeah. And the staff, you know, they kind of might go through more of a vetting process than they would have when things were less scripted. So you've talked about the rulings and, and advice giving and how you want it to be consistent over time. But how does that square if the rules change with each new session of Congress? Let me just put it this way. Legislating on an appropriation bill, at one point there was a precedent that basically viscerated the rule that said you can't legislate on an appropriation bill. So an appropriation bill, you can fund mm-hmm. and you can limit funds. Mm-hmm. You can move money around, but you, you know, 
but you can't legislate. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole body of precedence on what legislating means. And there was a precedent at one point that basically eviscerated the rule and and allowed members to basically to, to legislate on an appropriation bill. And so they had to change the rules of the House to basically overturn that precedent. So you do have situations like like that where, yeah, sometimes the rules deliberately take a turn from the precedents. Sometimes a rule is changed, and then you've got your body of precedent before that rule is amended and the body of precedent after the rule is amended. Do you want to go on, Mike? Sure. Um, in the in the interest of our listeners and knowing that many of them probably are not even aware of the parliamentarian office, is it is that something, is that position purposefully distant from the public, or is there a way that public either could be involved or should be involved with that office, at least in, in just reading the the um, the House practices and things like that. I think if you go to congress.gov. You, we love that website. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can get everything that's published by the parliamentarian. The parliamentarian's office is very small and very, very little turnover. There is some, obviously. I'm sitting here. But, <laughs> you know, but it's very little, very little turnover. And so when you say public be more involved in the office, you know, the, the, the parliamentarian makes an effort to, you know, speak at, at certain forums that they do every year. They have been involved in interparliamentary unions so that there is a sharing of information with other parliaments around the world. And, you know, I've, I've seen them over the years talk to interns, you know, on the House floor. So they're, you know, there's nothing secret about the office, believe me. It's just it's just small. Yeah. It's just small and it, and it's very, you know, frankly, you know, at one point I I kind of felt like, you know, there's only like 10 people in the universe who really even care what we do for a living. <laughs> you know? I mean, sometimes it sort of like would feel that way, yeah, you know, I because imagine. we'll you know, we were we were always preparing for problems that never came up. Mm. You know, we spent an awful lot of time kind of preparing for things, well, you know, what if this member does this? What if this member does that? How how should the chair handle this or that? You know, sort of kind of scripting out different scenarios. And so uh, there are procedural geeks in the world, for sure. But there's <laughs> not a whole lot of us. <laughs> well, we are totally geeks and have I've totally geeked out over this whole thing. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm so glad that you were able to do this and yeah, talk to us about so this much. office. It is incredible. Yeah. And it's incredible to, to hear yeah. from you. And so, yeah, we just want to thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to do it. For being our yeah, guest today. Yeah. And to our sweet, sweet listeners, we will see you guys next Wednesday. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.